Detroit, to me, there's a freshness to it. There's an openness to ideas. There's openness to creativity. And that's what I say. We want to keep the artists in the city. So we need to, in a sense, engage that. One way of doing it is raise the bar of the architecture. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. Conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Lorcan O'Hurley, an architect whose practice embraces architecture as a catalyst for social change. Lorcan joins us today to discuss his work in Detroit and Los Angeles. Lorcan, welcome. Pleasure to be here. Nice to see you, Charles. It's nice to see you as well. So you're founder and principal of LOHA Architects, a practice that I first came to know for your work in Los Angeles. I associate the practice with a an extraordinary accomplishment in terms of design creativity, primarily through multifamily residential, at least in part. More recently, you've opened an office in Detroit, and you've been among the design leaders uh, helping Detroit kind of reinvent itself in the past decade. Among other projects, the project that you collaborated with Bedrock on for the neighborhood of Brush Park is notable. Brush Park is this uh, community just, just about a mile north of the central campus marshes along Woodward, a centerpiece of the kind of early 20th century development of a certain mode of residential living. Uh, recently, you've been commissioned for reimagining a, a number of acres there with a kind of very new urban paradigm. Uh, Lorca, t- tell us about that project. Absolutely. It'd be a pleasure. I feel very fortunate that I was uh, approached close to four and a half years ago, perhaps work on Brush Park. Very excited about the opportunity to do four corner buildings in this development. It is an interesting project in the sense that it's the largest scale, largest scale housing project in Detroit uh, since Mises Lafayette Park. And that, in a sense, raises the bar in terms of what we're going to do, because it's the interesting thing when you deal with that scale. How do you then address issues of uh, how cities grow? It needs to be incremental. It can't have one idea over the large scope of this project. So I was one of a number of architects who were selected for this project. Very fortunate to get the four corner buildings in this development. And what's quite interesting about it was after we were commissioned, I wasn't specifically uh, told which project I was gonna get, but in the end, when the, the number of the architects were selected, we started to work together collaboratively to making sure that the ideas meshed with each other. There was an urbanistic strategy behind it. There was a paseo in the middle. There was a way of dealing with inside-outside spaces. So with that in mind, um, after we were commissioned, my strategy was to see this building as something that not only engaged the prospective buildings that were going to be built in this brush park development, but also the adjacent, adjacent properties. In a sense, it was a very different scenario than the work we do in LA, which is about urban infill stitching into the urban fabric. This is more like a new kind of a new paradigm. It's about a new figure ground. It's about how do you build for the future? So with that idea, we started to design the projects, not only for the solution that was appropriate for that specific site on the four individual sites, but also to see what was going to happen in the future and to design for that, which is quite interesting. For example, one of our projects, which was just recently completed, which is called John R., that particular project was right next to a Victorian house, which is fascinating in a sense that you had this existing Victorian houses that were going to be renovated. And then here we were bringing a contemporary solution right next to it. So we used the massing of the building to be able to address that issue. So 
our particular building, it steps down to three stories next to that Victorian house, which is commensurate in height, and push the massing on the further end of the property. So this was played a big role because in a sense, you don't want to end up with five or six story structures right next to two story Victorian houses. So with that in mind, that was the start. Um, right now we have all four are under construction or completed. We just finished the John R project, a second uh, corner of building we're doing, which is also a 35 unit building is nearly nearing completion in the next month or two. So very interesting project, a very fascinating way of tackling this type of solution about how do you build a large complex with not one voice, but a number of voices and allow that to kind of flourish within this overall brush park development. Among those other voices you mentioned, these include uh, Merge Architects out of Boston, Studio Dwell out of Chicago, Hamilton Anderson Associates out of Detroit, as well as the development company, Brush Park Development Company, that was put in place by Bedrock and Dan Gilbert's organization in part to, to kind of move this forward. Now, Lorcan, the, the notion of beginning this restructuring, let's call it, of Brush Park with the Four Corners seems both uh, sensible, but also quite unique in the context of you know the American city. Uh, this was, I I'm led to believe from your description, something that was embedded in the brief. This was already a presumption, or was that something that came out of the conversation with your, with your collaborators? It was embedded. The uh, principal idea of these four anchor buildings was in the brief. Uh, they did uh, quite obviously a feasibility study and they did a massing study. And it made sense. It was anchoring. It was giving substantial intensity to the corners. And then it would feed into the smaller scale duplexes and townhouses in the middle part of the development. We raised it a little bit further. There was the, the kind of, in a sense, the approach. Initially, they approached us about doing two solutions and then flip two solutions on the four buildings, meaning could we do identical buildings in two corners and an identical building in the other two? We pose the argument that each one, each site needs to respond accordingly to its context and culture where it is on those four corners. And they were very open to us designing four unique buildings in each corner. And that's what we took as our kind of new kind of task. With that in mind, we also looked at, as I mentioned, to the, the scale of the buildings. We have two six-story buildings and two five-stories. The step massing became a, an idea behind all of them because we're dealing with scale. The scale of the existing Victorian houses that were being restored and renovated, and also the existing, the, the new-to-be townhouses and duplexes. So with that in mind, it led to a really interesting solution, meaning that this wasn't the original premise that we were given as our kind of our task five to six story continuous rectangle boxes. We, we kind of challenged that idea and we chose to activate the roofs with outdoor spaces because we feel that's essential with these type of projects that you have inside and outside spaces, which certainly plays a big role right now, of course, with COVID, that having that opportunity to have fresh air and passive design strategies is so important. So the idea that the activating the roofs as it steps up was really important, not only in terms of engaging people on the street, but also the balconies across the street and the other housing projects. So this idea of inside out, this idea of engaging both inside and outside spaces to the buildings and the adjacent street is awfully important. I feel like buildings need to have that to be more robust. So we tend to do that with our work and Detroit certainly was no different. Uh, key to this project also was, you know, it was in Detroit, you had to look at the inclement weather, you had to design for Detroit. And that was a wonderful process we went through as well. I'm convinced architects can't simply parachute to new cities and bring what they had in Los Angeles and place it in Detroit. You have to really understand and do the research 
And that's what we did. And uh, my belief is that's why I think the projects are, are being successful. Tell us about the relationship to the rest of the designers, the other architects involved. So presumably they'll be involved in the rest of the build out of these blocks. How might that work? Yes, indeed. Again, you had mentioned a number of them, uh, Elizabeth Whitaker, who I got to know well, and also Studio Dwell was the other architect that I got to know quite well. And needless to say, Hamilton, in terms of did they do the early massing study, a master plan. I mean, what's interesting about the project was this was an opportunity of revitalizing, for want of a better word, this urban district. And, and the neighborhood that's there is going to be somewhat unique. So this had to be about not only simply cars, but it has to be more about pedestrians and bikes and more of a, in a sense, a grounding of a project where people would walk to and engage. So with that in mind, what's nice about working with the, uh, my colleagues on the project was we worked together to remove parking. We worked together to create a paseo in the middle. All these things were uh, stitched together. All four of my buildings do not have parking. It didn't pencil out in terms of the size of this, uh, uh, the building and to have subterranean parking. And quite obviously, to put on-grade parking was going to, in a sense, undermine the idea of creating this idea of paseo and a pedestrian-friendly neighborhood. So that was one of the things we worked together. How do we create collectively a paseo or an area in the, in the middle area that's open to the public? There's no fences around the perimeter of this large site. It, you can walk through it. It becomes this very engaging environment. With that in mind, I had to work collaboratively with not only Merge Architects and Studio Dwell and Hamilton to be able to stitch parking somewhere else so that that is an activated ground plane. And that to me was really exciting to integrate landscaping, to integrate public spaces, to be able to understand the urban fabric of where it is. It needed this in a sense, you know, given that this had been a very derelict area in the end, and they were looking to bring urban renewal. Well, one way of doing it is to allow people to walk into the site and on the site and to engage. So that's the interesting thing about it. The other thing that's interesting is, is that to bring contemporary design to an area that also has Victorian houses and others, and that worked really well with our kind of, in a way, uh, neighborhood meetings. We would present and discuss ideas and I'm excited to say that quite a bit of this was already done already in advance by Bedrock. But when we presented our solutions, there was a great response based on that context, that this is about the people who were there and to provide uh, components that are affordable and certain buildings and also to, to, in a sense, create a manageable rental strategy for these buildings. So all that is about keeping the people there, not get rid of them. And that to me was very important. So the designs of the buildings, well, one is a, a kind of charcoal brick, another is a red metal, another one is a fully wood building, a, a cedar exterior skin, all of which has decks and outdoor spaces stitched throughout the buildings. So all those things responded, the neighborhood responded well to it. They were a little bit surprised. It was very contemporary. I'm not usual to see these type of projects in, in these type of projects in throughout Detroit, but uh, they were excited about it. So wonderful to, to work with all of them on this project. One of the things that's been challenging about the Brush Park site, in, in addition to its relative abandonment, has been its relative size, its scale, and its relative distance from things. It is, you know, uh, about a mile north of the riverfront at the same time. It's along Woodward, close to Michigan Avenue. So central in a way, but also at a certain distance, both uh, north and south. So, Lorcan, to what extent are there uh, strategies at work to make this scale of urban district walkable? Or are there retail strategies that will make this feel uh, connected in a way? 
certainly are the strategies. Uh, each of the four corner buildings I'm working on all have ground floor retail. That's also a crucial component. You need to have these buildings to activate the sidewalk and the street. With that in mind, the key issue also is not only in terms of the contextual, but amplify in a sense your 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 kind of uh, the work you're doing and recognize that Woodward Avenue is a crucial artery, which is close by. So what we have is a project that is centered near the Q line public transit, close to Woodward Avenue. So in a sense, we see this, uh, my position is that, and I believe it's that collectively bedrock believes this is a catalyst for change. As this project nears completion, there will be additional opportunities to, to build anew, so to speak, in the side streets. We are personally involved with two other projects right now that are one block away from Brush Park, coincidentally. So uh, in a sense, we can speak from in the trenches. We have two additional projects that we are doing, smaller, needless to say, I think that's the future of Detroit too, smaller, in a way, missing middle projects that are buildings that are affordable to the community, but two projects that are within a half a block of this Brush Park development that are there because of this particular project. So it will act as a catalyst change. And what's so nice and what's so exciting about it, people recognize the value that the retail is gonna play and recognize the value of its adjacency to not only the Q line, but also Woodward Avenue. So all this thing is crucial. I believe an architect should always see beyond your borders or boundaries and recognize that what you do in a city has to have to be, and it's essential for it to be a social act, that it really engages the city. Tell us about the the extent to which architecture plays a role in manifesting a sense of public confidence. I mean, it strikes me that a part of your work and a part of, I suppose, the, the brilliance of your selection for this commission is the notion that you embody in, in the face of the public work, the notion of a commitment to the city and its legible, evident uh, kind of presence, the materiality of that. In any way, do you think that does the multiplicity of materiality or the four corner strategy, does that in any way, was that a concern in terms of branding the project, the notion of the kind of pairing or the mirroring or the symmetry? Was that simply based on a sense of efficiency or do you think that had to do with a sense of kind of branding the corners of this new district? Well, I would say that there was a combination of both, the idea of branding the corners in a sense city is, in a say, this is a, not a micro city, but how does one grow, develop at this scale and show variety? That was crucial. One can't just have a continuous townhouses uh, approach. One has to have the idea of five to six story apartment buildings. One has to have this idea of townhouses and duplexes and other type of uh, housing uh, strategies. So the idea of apartment buildings exists in cities. There is an energy, there's a dynamic to it. That's what they were hoping for because they believe that there will be in the future, if one can look at the strategies in Detroit, there will be five, six stories, if not eight to 10 story buildings in the future. So in a sense, you don't want to build too horizontal, too low, so it's not looking to the future. So my position would be that they wanted these four corner buildings from a massing standpoint is to recognize and value the nature of cities grow. You have a hybrid. You have a hybrid of smaller scale and larger scale. Our approach was to mediate that issue in, in terms of the overall mass of the project, that was the thing we brought to the table. That did not exist in the early strategies that Bedrock had. I, I think with regards to uh, materials and those other ideas, that's what we brought to the table as well in terms of the tactility and the, and the, and the idea of working with off-the-shelf materials, but hopefully in unique ways. For example, uh, you know, we had some uh, you know, long discussions about the idea of cedar exterior, but when you look at it, that exists throughout the city. People don't recognize it and don't see it, because there's a propensity towards like cement board or other type of materials. 
But if you look carefully, they do exist. That was our approach. Needless to say, the metal strategy with one building was recognizing and embracing the idea. The uh, industry that exists there, the autoculture, where you have cars that have these wonderful assemblies, but also these metal sampling processes that exist throughout the city that was robust when factories drove the city. That is no longer the case. It's more of a fin technology. Financial technology is the driver these days, among others. But I do think that uh, that's what's exciting for me as an architect, to be able to do work of consequence in that way that you embrace the city, embrace the culture, embrace what drives that city, but look to the future. And that's what these buildings are trying to say. And I commend Bedrock. They like the idea and they're open to the, uh, that strategy, that these buildings were four corner buildings unique to the site. And I have to say there's probably efficiency built in when they originally had the concept of the overall master plan, but it was time to come in and bring these ideas into it. I believe design has value. So with all of our project, whether it's in Detroit or LA, other cities, design does have bring value. And it's a strategy to how can you do it, but recognize the other aspects of it, efficiency, budget, and all the other components that play a role. So in a sense, our role is to re- see both science and art and try to bring artistry, but recognize the nature of how construction is and be able to pencil out the economics of Detroit, as we know, was very robust over the last 10 years. So it's in a going in a better way, let's put it that way. I think the five or, five or six years were even better, except for, of course, the last year, which had a really uh, stalled all that kind of optimism. I believe it'll come back. But when I, the, over the last five years working there, the optimism was exciting to me in, in terms of not only Maurice Cox at the planning, obviously in the planning department, but that encouragement of ideas, the encouragement of contemporary architecture can play a role. I'm convinced about that as well. I do think that design brings value. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to say that we need more people like Maurice Cox and, and throughout this country to be able to encourage and empower people to push design and create uplifting houses, certainly for those in, those in need. Speaking of other opportunities, and I know that you and your colleagues have been engaged in projects called the Obama Building on the northwest side of town, a former bank building converted for affordable housing. Uh, Tell us about that opportunity. Absolutely. It's a very important project. It was, uh, in a sense, originally Peter Cummings, who was the CEO of the platform, which is the development company, in a sense, purchased this building with the idea that there was funding available through Mayor Dugan. And that funding was for projects just like this. It was part of uh, an area called Old Old Redford. And Old Redford was an area, coincidentally, that we studied. Uh, The city of Detroit commissioned myself and LOHA to study uh, a six square mile area of Northwest Detroit and look at areas that would be catalysts for change. What sites could we, in a way, develop? Our strategy was to look at to the artists, where the artists who, in a sense, became the avant-garde. They went to areas of Detroit and they brought paint, they brought artistry to that area. And as a result of that, that led to a kind of exciting kind of nodes throughout Detroit, one of which is Old Redford, where this Obama building is. The the alley behind this particular building, a mural strewn throughout the alley. And it was done by a number of artists in the area, which is very exciting for us. So not only were we commissioned to study the larger area, but within that area was this particular building. Chaz Miller was this muralist who did quite a bit of work in Detroit, and he actually painted the mural 
are the painting of Barack and Michelle. So when uh, the platform approached us about doing it, it was a very limited resources, limited budget, but we worked with you know, very simple materials. Basically, it was a concrete building. It was a very simple materials, but we activated it with the programming. That's what's crucial to it. But that's the kind of projects that will be the future of Detroit right now. There are larger buildings that are available, but they don't have the resources per se to be able to renovate the whole building. But you can start with these smaller structures and that will act as a catalyst for change. And that's what this project, uh, the Obama building represents. It's very exciting in a sense that I believe that this is the future of Detroit. It's not simply the ground up new buildings. It's about working with the housing supply, working with the buildings and also adding to it and let that kind of grow and transform over time. So it is a renovation of a historical bank building. And, uh, you know, it has affordable units, has retail spaces, you know, and it's also part of uh, backed by the Strategic Neighborhood Fund. And that was set up by Mayor Dugan, which is really exciting. So the city is invested also in this type of renewal. So that's exciting to be able to engage the community through the process and to be able to work with the city and also work with a great client like the platform and Peter Cummings. It's interesting, Lurkin, that this project came out of what was originally a study, right? I mean, originally, it was a kind of research project. It strikes me, you know, one of a number, an untold number, study sites and research projects. I mean, over the course of the past decade, it strikes me with, with the leadership in the mayor's office and in the planning office, an extraordinary intensity of attention. You mentioned the extent to which, um, you know, Dan Gilbert's operation and Bedrock were seen to be, you know, above the parapet. They were clearly legible in the media, part of the media narrative of Detroit coming back. At the same moment, I'm just struck by the, the level and the quality of attention from you know, planning through landscape architecture, through the, the work of various forms of economic feasibility, community development work with outreach. It's um, on the one hand, it's maybe commensurate in scale to the enormity of the abandonment, right? The fact that Detroit fell off the radar. Absolutely correct what you're saying. It's about the neighborhoods. The area of Detroit was about before the white flight to the suburbs, which is beyond the neighborhoods. This whole approach in the last number of years is about the neighborhoods. It's not about downtown Detroit. In the previous years, in terms of Detroit's efforts to bring renewal to the city, they would always invest in downtown and look at conceivably the idea of a trickle-down effect or would find its way to neighborhoods, which is the African-American community. This was very different. It was about the neighborhoods, and that's what made it different. All of our work are in the neighborhoods, whether it's Old Redford or whether it's Corktown or these other areas. And that, I think, is the new paradigm. That's the thing that makes it different. And that's why I believe we will see this thing have traction because the communities have accepted and recognized that there is an effort not only from the mayor, but also the planning department and collectively all the teams that are working within these areas. We can go to the neighborhoods and we can actually design in such a way within limited resources, but if you show inventiveness in how you do it, you have ability to keep them there and it's for them. So I can't tell you how many neighborhood meetings I had on the two commissioned neighborhood studies we did for the city of Detroit, not only Northwest Detroit, we did another two square mile study called Russell Woods Narden Park. But uh, for me, it was inspiring as an architect to sit with the community and hear their voices. And at first it was reservation. They were like, are you really going to do anything for us? We've been the ones who've been fixing our streetlights. We've been taking care of our own garbage. We've been dealing with our houses when the septic system goes AWOL. Are you serious? Are you going to invest in the neighborhoods? And they recognized that that effort and commitment was there. 
but it was collective. It was the city. It was the planning department. It was the individuals uh, like architects, like ourselves, and also the activists that were in the area. And that's also important. There's a gentleman, John, who has a blight, Busters, and uh, John George. And so it's really interesting to work collectively, neighborhood group activists, to work with us collectively, architects and designers, to work with the planning department and the city. I'm excited what has happened. And of course, we have to deal with COVID. That put a stall to it. But I think the momentum that was there will continue after. And I believe the way it will find its way is these commitments like Brush Park and commitment to these other larger projects that there was already vested interest in them and they were under construction. So, but it is all about the neighborhoods. It's a one area that was never developed. The money was not invested. So I think collectively how architects can have a role is how can you do this within limited resources? Can you design inventive solutions, uplifting spaces, but work with very limited resource. That's to me is how we can contribute as architects. And also think outside the box, see yourself as a strategist. When you're asked to commission to do a building, it's not simply your site, it's the site next to it. It's the street, it's the sidewalk. How do you create that dynamic so that what you do will act as a catalyst for perhaps the opening of another store or shop somewhere else? Lorca, I'm struck by, in our conversation, and also my conversation with other folks in Detroit, the shared desire to derive something of an architectural language, something of, a, of an architectural expression that is both specific to Detroit today and avoids you know, being in some other time period or, or some other place geographically. Clearly, you've spoken to this in your, in your work in Detroit, the notion of trying to derive a material or a formal language that's really a, a unique expression of the conditions there while anticipating that the city will change. Has that been a consideration in your work? Absolutely. I, I'm convinced as an architect in the year 2020, one must look to contemporary strategies. It's something that we're familiar with. It's something that I believe is the future. In terms of Detroit, there needs, it's more optimistic, in my opinion, about the future. If you take that strategy to be able to push it further. So that's what we try to do. But you, the grain of the city is what you bring. You bring the soul of it. You don't bring the style of it. And that's crucial. And also, you raise the bar in terms of one's work as an architect if you recognize value what's there. And that dialogue between a more contemporary solution with the, uh, with the existing kind of uh, fabric is what brings great cities together. So if you bring the artistry of the city forward, and to me, uh, you know, Detroit is about the artists. They have the progressiveness to be able to take the city as a canvas. And we believe, or I believe as an architect, we should bring that same sensibility. You need to move forward. You need to be able to have a more progressive approach, which I believe Detroit is. I often say that even the way the city functions right now in Detroit, Los Angeles can learn from. There's so much bureaucracy within the city of Los Angeles because of the largeness of it. For me to work with the planning department in Detroit was a pleasure. It was about allowing us to bring ideas to the table. And that's what's exciting for me is it's also not only collectively about an approach of philosophy is rethinking the, uh, they are less about style and more about soul of what the city is, is what the approach is. So that's what we do, but also came from uh, an openness to the planning department. They weren't coming to us and say, here's what you need to do. They were saying, what is it you want to do? As long as you engage, as long as you engage the neighbors, engage us, we want you to move forward, bring ideas. And that's what's so exciting about Detroit right now. It's about ideas. 
You've mentioned the role of cultural production in the arts and the history of the city and its present kind of um, renewal, its renaissance. Obviously, Detroit has been a city that has been disproportionately an exporter of culture, popular culture, music, the fine arts across a range of media. Are you optimistic at all that we could add architecture to that list anytime soon? I mean, Detroit, of course, has had a great history of architects and architecture at various moments in time. Based on my conversations, and this one reinforces it, there seem to be a, a new range of experiments going on, different building typologies in a different relationship to a, an image of the city. At a moment when so much of the American city elsewhere tends to be generic, semi-replaceable, you know, it looks more like a kind of a spreadsheet or a pro forma expressed in building components. And you see so much of that uh, elsewhere. No, I agree. You certainly see that elsewhere. Detroit, to me, there's a freshness to it. There's an openness to ideas. There's openness to creativity. And that's what I say. We want to keep the artists in the city. So we need to, in a sense, engage that. One way of doing it is raise the bar of the architecture. Let that be one hand in hand with the artists. And uh, to me, that's essential. Um, I'm very grateful for uh, obviously Morris Cox openness and commitment to architecture and good ideas. That's crucial, but it is a dance. You need to be nimble. There are different viewpoints when one meets with the neighborhood communities about your project, their viewpoint is going to be different. But I believe that if you can see good architecture not comes from simply formal polemics, but more about engaging politics, economics, smart strategies in terms of how you build, all these other aspects to it, political, economic, and social aspects are crucial. If you combine all those and know how to navigate that world, the work is just that much better. It means the people living there in these projects recognize the importance of it. So you can bring that and understand that those aspects, those forces are not detriment, but assets. You have a, a great approach to architecture. So I don't deny it, I engage it. And that's to me is uh, crucial to architecture. It's not about formal geometry, formal polemics. It's more about the other aspects, engage. Well, one thing that comes across among many from your practice, Lorcan, is the sense of the both the role of architecture as a kind of civic or public embodiment of a set of collective aspirations, but also, as you've just said, the interconnectedness of all things. You know, I mean, this is not always the case, again, with architects or architecture that you have a sense immediately that it's connected to all of these other, you know, the economy, the politics, the social fabric, the, you know, the conditions of the public schools, the availability of a public library, that sense of a kind of interconnectedness or kind of civic mindedness. That's something that I clearly associate with your practice in Los Angeles as I first came to know it. But it's also striking me in this conversation, something that must predate your decision to be an architect. I mean, so it, where does that come from? Can you dial back and suggest like where you're, where, where the idea that architecture is connected to a broader set of topics, where does that come from for you? Oh, very good question. I was actually born in Dublin, Ireland. Uh, so I, uh, I was born there. I came here at a very young age. Thus, I sound American. I was three years old. My dad was in the film business. He was an actor. So my whole life was traveling. He would work in Russia, Italy. We lived in Rome. We lived in Moscow. We lived in Uzhgorod in Ukraine. We lived in London. We lived in Dublin. We lived in Madrid. We lived in Almeria. So I, my background is about that social engagement and recognizing culture. And I loved it. I, I went to many, many schools, but I was fascinated with cities. I've been fascinated by urban culture because I've had the opportunity to live in these cities as a kid. Dublin has a great connection to modern architecture. I often see my work, even though I ended after spending, of course, nine years in New York, I worked at 
Kevin Roaches and then I pay on the Lou for four years. And then I worked at Stephen Hall's for three years. I came to LA to start my practice, but my eyes and my inspiration was always Europe because of my background. So in a sense, that was very important about the cultural aspects of living in a community of countries. That was one aspect. I also, from an educational standpoint, I do have an MA in history and theory from the Architectural Association. And my dissertation was towards new models of social connectivity. So I was always interested in this aspect about how, as an architect, you can engage not only culturally, socially, all the aspects. So it's something that's in my DNA. And that's what I drive with all of our work here at LOHA. It's, it's important. I think it raises the level of an architect. And it, in a sense, presents the idea that architect can do work of consequence. So that is the combination. My background as a child, I loved living in Rome. I had 10, 30, 11 at night with my folks walking down those marble uh, sidewalks and getting some ice cream. And you know, people in, in Rome would go to sleep at two in the morning. As a nine-year-old, you love that. So there was aspects of that and, and understanding all of that. It was just played a big role, as you say. It came from that. And my work was always about culture of people. That explains a lot. I mean, you seem uh, genuinely interested in human beings and the way that they socialize, the way that they organize. In that regard, you've mentioned um, architecture in Ireland these days. As you look back at the places that you've been in your life, are there particular places that you return to? You mentioned Rome. Are there particular places that were more instructive in the role of architecture in that regard? Sure. I would say this is a very good point. In contrast to LA, which is a very privatized, car-oriented city, areas like Barcelona, where we spent some time, the idea of cities that was walkable, the piazzas, that they kind of dynamic as cities. We, we uh, spend, I spent quite a bit of time in Italy, and there's an amazing city called Lucca, which was fascinating to me, not only as a young child, but also we've gone back there, my wife and I and kids over the years. And so I'm always drawn to cities where it's about engagement. It's just, to me, it gives life value. So I look at these cities where it's about walking. It's not about the car culture. So all of our work really engages that. Uh, we borrow space from these private developments to give back to the public, to create, expand, in a sense, the bandwidth of sidewalks, to say it more, to allow it to be more robust in that way. And certainly within the city of LA, that's really important. It is a privatized city. It certainly has a very different approach. But in a sense, I'm fighting that good battle. I believe that one can do it and allow value to the projects we do by really recognizing how buildings sit in cities and how they engage the city. So all those things play a role, but yeah, Italy, Rome, uh, Florence is great. Uh, Dublin, uh, we go back there twice a year. It's an extraordinary city, Dublin. Uh, to me, it's in a way the Paris of the 30s uh, and how it's happening there now. Quite obviously, it's very successful financially through it being the, the base of technological uh, companies like Microsoft, Intel, Cisco, Google, all of them are Apple. They're all there. So in the sense, Ireland, which is my background, because I went to school there from the age of eight through 15. So all my education was in Europe. I came for university to the US. So I, uh, I had an Irish accent back then. I've lost it, of course, again. But to me, it was about that. It was about that process and understanding European cities and the fascination I have for urban cities for more engagement pedestrian strategy. So I've always brought that to the work. So from a, a very young age, not just from you know a European capital to then look at America, in many, many cultures, different cities, you develop the habit, the ability to land in a place and 
understand its grain, understand its fabric, its textures. This clearly, you know, imagines, you know, prepare, I imagine prepares you for landing in Detroit and reading it as its own culture. There's something remarkable about that. And it's clearly a skill set and a sensibility that you've cultivated. So how, based on all of that, did you choose Los Angeles of all places to open your own practice? I mean, that, that it's counterintuitive or at least nonlinear. Well, it was, I look back going down, it reconnects back to my family, my mom and dad. And quite obviously, my dad being a film actor, it was based in Los Angeles. We spent uh, formative years in Europe when he got tired of Hollywood. And that's us. I it, it kind of aligned with my age between eight and 15, where he did quite a bit of work in Europe. I, I can't tell you how grateful I am for that. But LA was a place where I uh, did eventually want to come back. It's an area to speculate. Had spent nine years in New York, uh, actually two years in Hamden with uh, Kevin Roach, coincidentally an Irish architect who went to school with my dad. My dad became a film actor, but he had a Bachelor of Architecture degree. And Kevin Roach was his buddy. So I was between my third and fourth year undergrad, and I turned to my dad and said, there's an Irish architect named Kevin Roach. Do you know him? I went to school with him. So my first job was with Kevin, frankly, through a letter my dad sent to him and said, my son is studying architecture. That got me back to the East Coast. So from Kevin, I did have the opportunity to join the Louvre Museum, a team, worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week on that from in the 80s, from the early days when it was a box. We, we did studies of a pyramid, a box, and a dome. Honored to be able to see that early development of that project. It was always going to be a pyramid, frankly. Uh, but, but in the early days, that project was fascinating to go through that process with I and Pay. The scale was, pro, was, and it was difficult for me to engage that type of project, you know, millions of square feet. But yeah, after I pay, I took 18 months off to be an artist in New York. I lived in Tribeca and had the great opportunity to have this wonderful um, sublet where I painted. Then I ran out of money. But Stephen Hall at that time was just a four-person firm. I admired his work in the mid-80s to late 80s. So I joined Stevens for three years. So I think Stephen was important in terms of the, uh, the scale of that office to be able to say, okay, I think I can do this. So that's what led to me starting my own practice. He ran out of work as well. That's another reason, but came to Los Angeles to start my practice and started the way that most architects do additions to houses or in ground up structures. And that was the reason I felt New York was we've been challenging for me to accomplish that, but Los Angeles seemed to be an area to speculate and opportunities. That's why I ended up in Los Angeles. I feel somewhat removed when you're on the West Coast sometimes, but uh, I do spend time in the East Coast. So not now, but before the COVID period. But. I want to ask a little bit about challenges. So going forward in your practice, you know, I think I'm interested to know you've mentioned uh, Los Angeles as being a, a fairly bureaucratic place to do work as you're engaging in work, both not for profit, but also in the for profit world. What are the biggest challenges that you see facing in a city like Los Angeles? I mean, many of the conversations we've had have to do with housing and the challenge of housing our population, our citizenry. Are those the, the principal challenges that you see or what, what are the issues that you're addressing in your work going forward? Absolutely. I mean, we could, there's a variety of type of challenges in terms of infrastructure. In regards to housing, quite obviously, we have over 65,000 homeless on the street. So we have four different supportive housing projects, uh, two of which are under construction, and we've done a number of others. Our projects in terms of are also embedded with affordable housing projects in addition to supportive. That's a crucial component, continues to be that. Cities right now, people can't afford to live here. The young people can't. And so the more housing supply you have, the better. So we are very, as you know, very involved with that. But we see as a larger story there. It's providing equity 
to everybody in the city of LA. So that's crucial. That has to continue. Infrastructure is also crucial. Their public transit is already exploded in LA, which is great. Uh, having been a car centric culture for many, many years, there is public transit within the 26 people who work in my practice. I would say a third of them either bike ride or they take public transit. We have I, the project that we moved to, the building I bought was one block away from the expo line. And that brings also to you downtown, brings me to USC to teach, but also goes to the ocean in Santa Monica. So I think that's crucial as well. The city is changing. Oh, quite obviously, this is in a way of a, a pause, as we all know. But I do believe people are social and inherently social and that it will play a role. People will engage public transit. They will engage those type of projects. I don't think we should be throwing money at walls between Mexico and America. We should stop that and put it in proper infrastructure. We should really engage cities in that way. That's crucial. So all those things are important, but we have to also, in a strange way, given that we're pulling away from the car-centric concept of LA, we have to get rid of parking requirements, not only for supportive housing, but others. Uh, I've done my early homeless housing projects. There was a requirement for parking and that cost a million and a half dollars that our client had to pay as required. That has to go. And it is. So there is a looseness that's happening within the city in recognizing that we have to rethink how we're doing things. And also more of a, a bottom-up strategy in certain areas. They're allowing flexibility. They're, they recognize that um, parklets and areas to bring outdoor spaces is crucial, not only for the COVID period, but also just generally speaking. It's crucial to be able to create a greater place for, for people to um, live. One of our homeless housing projects that's under construction is called Isla Intersection. It's over 80 beds. It's container. It's modular housing. That's a crucial future as well. We have to recognize that we have to provide housing faster. So if you can work with modular or container structure, this is a modified housing, a modified container project. The city council person liked the idea of containers. So that's the aspect of engaging city council, engaging politics. He embraced the idea. It's not easy. Modular containers are no cheaper than others. So we had to recognize that this was an approach we had to take, but we're doing that project. But it's not only providing supportive housing. It's not only working with modular or containers, which are under construction right now in a factory as we're doing the foundations. So we save a year in terms of the construction process for that project thus bringing housing faster. But also we have a road that's right next to it and it's right next to a freeway. And so there's toxins from that freeway. That's the one, it's the confluence of the 110 and 105 freeway here in LA, which is a really robust, toxic <laughs> environment. But these properties exist. The city has over 1,700 very challenging sites throughout the city. They've not been able to put it out there for nonprofit developers to provide housing because it's right next to freeway, which is not a healthy environment. Well, we were commissioned to do it. So we actually got the city to vacate that street to provide it as a, as a green lawn. So we're, we're actually planting trees and we're actually specified the right trees to be able to pull the toxins from the freeway so that the uh, people living in the housing are actually in a better environment. So this will be a kind of sense of potentially um, in a way, a precedent. Annenberg Foundation is providing $3 million for this street turning into a paseo, for want of a better word. So it's more pedestrian oriented. The car is vacated. You can't drive on the street. It's called Athens Way. It's on, it's on our website, but uh, that's a really fascinating one because not only is it providing homeless housing, it's dealing with a modular or a container uh, structure, meaning more expediting the process. 
In addition to that, we're actually vacating the street. So you're slowing the space, you're providing the city to be more of a walkable space. That particular Athens Way will also have a farmer's market on weekends. And this particular area, South Los Angeles, where this is located, it's a food desert. There's no opportunities of food in that area. But if you can provide that, that's great. So I believe that's how an architect can be strategist, where you're working with the city to vacate a street, to make it a slow space. You're working with the city to really recognize, even though it's challenging, to do uh, container projects. Uh, all those things play a big role. And I think that's the future what, uh, within Los Angeles. It's about those kind of forward-thinking approaches. Thinking forward, we will look forward to the U.S. release of Architectures of Social Act, uh, Lorcan O'Hearley Architects. Lorcan, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. My pleasure. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilmore, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit fotac.gsd.harvard.edu.